This morning, we're going to look at five hindrances to worship and two displays of grace at the end. And this will all come out of John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is, I would say, the classic passage on worship. The word worship is, I think, stated five times over and over, particularly in verses 22, 23, and 24. Um, Also, then we'll touch cross-reference to Paul when he talks about a lifestyle worship. And then we're going to go to the greatest book on worship, which is the book of Psalms. And so we'll get a clip of that too this morning. But let me hit these five hindrances of worship first. The first five are geographical hindrances to worship, cultural hindrances of worship. Number three, intellectual hindrance or is perceptional hindrances to worship. And then the fifth one is locational hindrances to worship. And then, then, then we'll see at the spirit and truth as it relates to being unhindered, uh, exercise unhindered worship, and then the spreading of unhindered worship and seeing the gospel go forth in that sense. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to chapter John. You need to see it because I want you to see it because this is part of how God speaks to you by seeing God's word um, by with our eyes. So open your Bibles or turn them on. Go to John chapter 4 and we'll just walk through this passage together. All right, we there? I'll give you a moment and we're all there. John chapter 4. Um, Juan Cuatro. All right, those for those who speak Spanish. Is that right? Juan? Juan is John? <laughs> no one's nodding their head. Yeah, Juan is John. Okay. All right. Hindrance number one, a geographical hindrances to worship. We see here in verse one through six. When Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, making and baptizing more disciples than John, I believe referring to John the Baptist, in parentheses, a, a very important note here, although Jesus, uh, uh, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only, the ba- only his disciples. So a little slight misunderstanding here with the Pharisees. Jesus was indeed making disciples, but uh, the, his disciples were actually doing the actual baptism here. So <clears throat> we see in verse 3, we see that he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Um, a little bit of what's going on here. Um, the Pharisees are trying to elicit and incite some competition between Jesus and John the Baptist. And they were highlighting this competitiveness between the two. Not that they were being competitive, but they were trying to make issue with it. Um, and so that's a little bit of the backdrop what's going on. We know that John the Baptist, the forerunner, um, was mentioned earlier in John chapter, I believe, chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of John. But we see that Jesus left Judea and went north to Galilee. For Jesus, he had a few different choices. Um, along, for the sake of the gospel, he had three, one of three routes that he could take. And so which one did he take? Um, if you look at the map, he could have went on a coastal route across the Jordan. He could have went up through um, Perea. Or he could take the most direct route, which, be, which would be straight through Samaria. And so Jesus wasn't going to either side road. He was going to take the most 
direct route. Why? Because he had a mission to accomplish. He was under um, the will of his father, too. And <clears throat> there's also some points that he was trying to make as he went through Samaria, and we're going to look at that very soon. In verse 4, we see that he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Some of you may remember this in the Old Testament that Jacob, uh, Joseph was in the slavery by his brothers and later became Pharaoh. Um, a little bit more background to keep in mind here is that Orthodox Jews typically would avoid Samaritans and the region of Samaria. They had a long-standing, deep-seated hatred between each other. Uh, so Jewish men would typically avoid going through Samaria. Um, <clears throat> that's one way we deal with people we don't like or don't want to relate to. What? We avoid them. Um, I'll never forget one person who was sharing that he didn't like a certain group of people, and so he literally walked several blocks around them just to avoid them. And that's one way we deal with things, not the most godly way, not the way Christ would have. And so let's get a little bit of background here. Warren Wiersbe comments on this relationship between Jews and Samaritans. <laughs> Samaritans were a mixed race, part Jew and part Gentile that grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes in 727 BC, rejected by the Jews because they couldn't prove their genealogy. The Samaritans established their own temple and religious services on Mount Gerizim. This, <coughs> this only fanned the fires of prejudice. So intense was their dislike what <coughs> was a dislike of the Samaritans that some of the Pharisees would pray that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. That's pretty intense, right? That's a little bit of ill will there. We don't want the gospel to go to you. We don't want, we don't want you to have and experience the grace of the gospel. And so they literally pray that no Samaritan would be raised at the resurrection. That's, that's a lot of less, less lot of ill will, right? You ever have a little like that? Eh, maybe, no, I don't know. Wish something bad happened to another. But let's go on. Um, I pointed out earlier, Jesus, I believe, is on mission. And so he didn't go left or right, east or west. He went straight through Samaria, where a typical Jew, Jesus would be viewed as a Jew at that time. And most would not go this way. They would take the long way instead of the direct way typically. But Jesus went um, through um, Samaria. <clears throat> he did not take a shortcut. Um, he was not concerned about the bad blood, the history between Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because he was seeking earlier in this part of John chapter 4 for true worshipers that would worship him. Okay, um, And so he's not saying that this group of people cannot be worshipers of me. He, he believes in God's plan that those, even, there's, even though there's bad history, he's going to stay on God's um, calling and missionary plan. And so Jesus is walking 
in a dangerous place, a place where he was hated. It was like going on the turf of a rival gang, right? Have you guys ever experienced gang-related stuff? A little bit? Anybody? Raise your hand. Any gang experience stuff? A little bit? Some of you guys? Okay. A little bit here? I mean, I didn't know what was what. <laughs> but even growing up where I lived, there were certain colors that some gangs wore. And sometimes I found myself not knowing what color anything and just being neutral or wearing the wrong color or being in the wrong place. And it would be not a wise thing to do. Jesus was in the wrong place for a Jewish man to walk through Samaria. Understand, he was walking on dangerous territory. So moving on, Jesus arrived at Sakar, which in verse 6 is Jacob's well. <coughs> Jacob's well was there. So Jesus was weary as he <coughs> was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Yes, Jesus Christ did get tired. He walked and exerted energy from the human side of him. Though he is divinely all-powerful, he did go through human experiences. And the human experience that he experienced by walking, by exercising, going through a part of land that is hot and desert-like, he found himself to be wary. Um, He was tired. At the sixth hour, um, according to Roman time, that would be 12 noon. Okay? So this is, these are things that Jesus experienced in the human flesh. He's tired. I'm sure he's also hungry, and I'm sure he's also thirsty. So that's a little bit of what's going on with Jesus in the background. <clears throat> he's going through... An area where it's dangerous, and he was not going to let geographical geography hinder him from seeking worshipers, true worshipers, that will worship him. So I just want to take a step and just ask ourselves, are we willing to take the gospel to places where it is dangerous? where it's difficult, where it's hard, um, where maybe there are people that uh, you might have some ill will toward because they might have did something to you or to your relative. And so you have this history behind you. Or maybe even as far as are we willing to go across the street and you have this neighbor and you find he's annoying because he's blasting his stereo all the time, keeping you up. Are you willing to look beyond that and take the gospel there? I'm just talking about geographical barriers. The gospel still has many places to go and some just locally across the, across the pew and to the next office. Or, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. There's this movie out. I can't but Ken and Barbie ha- speak of a certain culture <laughs> on that they live in, and some people don't want to enter in that culture, nor will they enter another culture. It's there. And so that's geographical. So now we're stepping in the cultural hindrances. So the second one is the cultural hindrances in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. So we'll begin with verse 7. Let's get a little bit more of the story. A woman 
from Samaria came to draw water. Okay? So we see a woman from Samaria, so we know her background is Samarian, and she's wanting to draw water. So what's the big deal here? It is 12 o'clock. It's mid-afternoon. Culturally and typically, we'll stick on culturally, women would typically go get water either early morning or after toward the evening time. Women did not go out around the clock in, in this time, in this culture. And so maybe the question is, why is she going at 12 noon? Um, we'll answer that later, but she might be hiding or concerned or something like that. So we'll see that very soon. But we see that Jesus interacts with this woman. It says, Jesus said to her, referring to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. Jesus is asking for a drink. In parentheses, for his disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. So we see here Jesus, who looked to be looked upon as a Jewish man, is speaking to this woman, a Samaritan. And he's asking for a drink. This would be a, a breach, um, a crack, um, a break into the norm of the culture of the day. Jewish men would not talk to Jewish women in public. Um, this would be social a form of social amnesty, animosity, excuse me, a social animosity between these two groups, and even more so because Jesus was looked upon in that day as a, a rabbi, so a spiritual teacher, a teacher of religion, definitely wouldn't want to um, interact with a woman who was a mixed breed from their perspective, a woman who had uh, a bad reputation, and so we'll look at that. Um, but it's clear here that both Jesus and the disciples were willing to break cultural norms for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to break cultural norms for the sake of the gospel. Um, and so I want you to see that. They're not breaking God's law, but they're willing to break cultural norms for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is willing to talk to this woman, and disciples are willing to go shopping amongst in the of Samaritans. We do this stuff today. I don't know. I grew up with uh, relatives, and they would tell me, we don't buy from those people of this color. We only buy from people of this color. I don't know if you've ever had relatives or people speak to you that way. I experienced that. I mean, seriously, have you guys ever been talked that, taught way, taught, taught that way in any kind of way, anywhere? A little bit? So that's what's going on here. We see here um, her response, the Samaritan woman's response to Jesus. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A Samaritan woman. This woman, this Samaritan woman, was very familiar with the customs of the day. And she literally said it here. Why are you asking for a drink for me? This is not appropriate. This is not culturally appropriate. And so in parentheses, it literally says here, for Jews have Samaritans. This wasn't kosher. This wasn't right. At least at the level of what the culture would have for the day. 
So, the, 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 some of the verbiage and some of the words that would be used of the day, a Jewish man would not want to pollute himself. He would not want to be perceived as a clean man relating to those who are unclean. This would be inappropriate, highly culturally not acceptable in that day. <laughs> but Jesus is not going to be stopped by culture. Um, especially these types of cultural customs. Um, Jesus is sold out for God's glory. He's sold out for God's will, um, for God's kingdom. And so Jesus is concerned about the gospel and accomplishing the mission for that day. And he's, he's concerned uh, about deeper needs, spiritual needs. And so we see in verse 10, Jesus answered her, and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. So what's the big deal here? What's going on here between this woman and Jesus? What exactly is living water? What is Jesus offering to the Samaritan woman? So you get to think on that, and I'll get a drink of H2O water. So, as you can think through your Old Testament history, living water had metaphorical significance in a lot of different parts of the Old Testament. I'll just highlight some. We know in Jer Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, um, we see that the Israelites have hewed out broken cisterns. They have an opportunity to take in living water, but they said, hey, we're going to go after these broken cisterns foolishly instead. We also have Old Testament metaphors that talk about um, God's grace and the Spirit um, working in such a way to bring life and transformation. One of the biggest texts is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 7, where it talks about the washing and the renewal of the Spirit of God. And we see that, we see that linked up to John 3, where it talks about being born again, and Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where it talks about being regenerated. And so Jesus used this woman's need for physical water to sustain her physical life in this hot and dry land. And he uses it as a spiritual lesson to what? To get at a deeper need for living water, to quench a what? A spiritual thirst, a deeper longing that is within her. And so what's going on? And I want to step back. Every one of us has a need for what? Living water. For, to quench our spiritual thirst deep inside of us. Um, Jesus says through the Gospel of John a number of I am statements, and one of them is that, what? I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. There's so many things that he declares who he is to help people to understand who Jesus Christ is and help them to understand at the same time their need for something greater um, in this life or what <laughs> something greater that Jesus offers 
to set up the life to come. He's, he's talking about physical things, but he's really talking about a spiritual need and a spiritual reality, essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ through the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus is relating and pointing out uh, to this woman, he's showing her that she is ignorant in at least three different ways. This woman doesn't understand who he is. This woman doesn't understand what he has to offer, and this woman doesn't understand how to receive this living water. So she's not conversing, and she's not getting it yet, at least at this point. And so Jesus is going to continue this conversation, but at least we understand this much: the Samaritans were culturally and spiritually blind just as the Jews are culturally and spiritually blind. And guess what? Just like every human being on the face of the earth, we are culturally and spiritually blind. There's cultural things that are set up that hinder us from worshiping, that hinder us from seeing who God and who Jesus Christ really is. And if I would take it even further, sometimes our own culture is written in good and bad ways in our religious culture, okay? Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I'll just pick on ourselves. Baptists have a reputation for a lot of things that are not strictly biblical. Um, they, in, in past, when I was a new believer in the 90s, they would be known to very be, be very strict on not dancing. But if you look at the scriptures, we'll see what? Dancing is actually in the Bible. But then you need to quantify what kind of dancing. And so we can look at that. Um, Sometimes Baptists are connoted in a what? A language related to where their political view is or isn't. I don't want you guys to think of each other as Baptists. Um, we, the key for us is we want to be Christ followers and those who live our lives based on the scriptures. So <clears throat> I just, but I do feel sometimes when people say I grew up Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic, that brings a lot of, I'll say cultural baggage along with it. That's problematic. Um, when, when I think of my Catholic background, there's so much of my Catholic background that has nothing to do with the Bible. It's, it has almost everything to do with things not about the Bible. I mean, worshiping Mary is nowhere seen in Scripture, but there's such a high emphasis on it. Giving indulgences is nowhere in Scripture, but it's a big deal in the Catholic Church. Uh, so we miss Jesus in our cultural baggage at times. And so just ask yourself, what are the cultural baggage or lenses that you have taken upon that hinders you from clearly seeing who Jesus is? Number three, um, the third hindrance here is intellectual hindrances to the gospel in verses 5 through 11. The Samaritan woman responds, and the woman said to him, said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Okay? This woman is using her mind intellectually. She's looking at Jesus like, you know, where is your, you know, bucket to draw water? She's asking 
a very obvious question. And she goes, also, the well is deep. You know, it looks like you don't have any rope or string or cable or something to drop your bucket down. And so she's thinking that this is a very rational, intellectual way. And so she asked this last question, where do you get the living water? That's a good question. Where do you get this water? Clearly, this woman is not understanding. Her mind is blinded and darkened. But this woman has made multiple trips to avoid being shamed in the morning or the evening. And she knows that there's physical H2O water in this well. And she's having this conversation with Jesus and saying, hey, you don't, you don't have the necessary equipment here. Verse 12, she asks a little bit different kind of question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us his well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so Jacob was revered, someone that uh, she knew from the Old Testament, and she spoke positively about Jacob and his use of this well, because he used it, his sons used it, and his family did. And so to answer this question, is Jesus greater than Jacob? Emphatically, the answer is what? Yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jesus offers something greater than what Jacob was offered at this well. We see in verse 13, Jesus' response to her. Everyone who drinks of this water, the physical water in this well, Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. So he's taking a spiritual analogy. You can drink things physically, H2O, and it may quench your thirst for a little while. But he goes in verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. So Jesus makes a contrast and he talks about a different kind of water that will quench her thirst and they will never be thirsty again. And Jesus is talking about spiritual water, living water here, going on here. That water that I give, that I will give him will become in him a spring of water willing up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about a spiritual, a living water that will well up into eternal, eternal life. This water breeds and feeds us spiritually. The Samaritan woman responds, and the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to go here to draw water again What at this well. She is not thinking about it. She doesn't want to thirst. She doesn't want to go be shamed. She doesn't have to want to drop down her bucket in this well. She doesn't want to go through all that hassle, shame, and physical effort. And she doesn't want to be thirsty. So, again, she is not getting it intellectually, mentally. And so, let's just pause here and just practically think of this intellectual hindrance. There are 2.5-ish million people here in the Triangle area. There's 8 billion people on the face of this planet. How many of them are Christians? 
I don't know the exact number because I'm not God, but if we remove the secular stats and remove the Mormons and the Jehovah Witness and the Catholics out of the equation, which I don't think any one of those are Christians because they have too much hindrances and baggage to the gospel. And I'm not, not to say that Baptist, Methodists is that we have other baggages to the gospel. My whole point is maybe 10%, 20% are Christians, 25, that's maybe being generous. But I'll say this much, those who are not Christians are drinking what? The sawdust of this world. They're looking to the sawdust of this world to quench their thirst, right? They, it comes in a lot of packages. We just came through a series of finishing the book of Ecclesiastes and talking about many ways that we could pursue pleasure and hope and all kinds of stuff. And the lesson that Solomon says at the end, that life isn't found in a bottle, it's not found in ultimate pleasures and ultimate things. Those things will not ultimately satisfy and so there is a lot of humanity that is thirsty in this way. And then for the Christians today, and we've got to really look at ourselves. Are we drinking from living water, Jesus Christ himself, and then at the same time drinking from this world simultaneously and forming our own mixed drink to the point that we think Christianity isn't so good or Jesus isn't so great because we're mixing soy milk with soy sauce? Is this not happening. Come on, let's do that, right? Let's mix some soy sauce and some soy milk together and drink that. That's what we're doing as we take in the world and we take in Jesus at the same time. It just doesn't taste that great for your soul. And so those are some, what, intellectual hindrances that we're facing. Number four, number four <coughs> is perceptual hindrances to worship. The woman failed to understand the nature of living water that Jesus offered. And so Jesus is trying to get to the point and clarify some things right now in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, Jesus responds and goes and says that you have had five husbands and the one that you are now, <coughs> the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She responds, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet so this interaction is very interesting. Jesus clearly knows uh, her, her marital status. She also knows her, her history and her background and the sin that has been a part of her life. And all she has to say is what? I perceive that you are a prophet to, to know about these things. But the truth is Jesus has intimate, deep knowledge of her moral depravity and her need for living water. And so um, let's get a little bit more, of ins more insight here. John MacArthur puts it this way. He goes, however, instead of listening to Jesus, she, she tried, tried to get him on a detour by discussing the different differences between the Jewish and Samaritan religions. 
it is more comfortable to discuss religion than to face one's sin. However, Jesus once again revealed her spiritual ignorance. She did not know who to worship, where to worship, and how to worship. I just want to put a footnote here. Much of what we think about today, unfortunately, is messed up in these areas. Who to worship, where to worship, and how to worship. Um, Who to worship? I just want to pause here. The worship is to be directed to Jesus Christ himself. But many times we miss it. We hit Mary, we hit Judah, I mean Buddha, we hit other things. But even in other cases, maybe big churches, we come and we go to the service and we're coming out, we're talking about the guitarist who jumped and did this running thing and slid on his knees and he jumped off a box and we're talking about him and not and missing out on, on Jesus. Other folks, especially religious cultures, often concerned about where you worship and we'll hit that very soon. But it's often associated with the building, the location. And Jesus is going to bust a hole in this idea of where you worship. And then she's also confused on how you worship. And so, again, Jesus is trying to hit those things then, and I believe he's trying to address the same things, too, on how we worship. So, moving on, he made it clear that all religions are not equally acceptable before God, and that some worshipers act in ignorance and unbelief. And so, that's happening with this woman, and that's happening here today. And so the object of worship, at least I want to point out here, is Jesus Christ himself. It's not the instruments, it's not the stage light, it's not the tattoo, it's not those things. It's, it's Jesus. Right? Even if your tattoo is in Hebrew and it says Yahweh, it doesn't make you more spiritual. I, I, I don't know. I watch YouTube and they, they, they focus on the tattoo and I know it has to be out there because people are focusing on the tattoo. All right? Hindrance number five, um, locational hindrances to worship. I I feel this is ridiculous, but it's a problem. We we don't get this. And this is one of the biggest ones, is the hindrance as it relates to location. So Jesus, we're identifying a a place of worship, and the the place of worship was a huge, huge deal for both the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritan woman continues to revel about these things that Jesus is saying, but she's, in her case, she's still concerned about a location of worship. And so she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain near Mount Gerizim, but you are saying in Jerusalem where the Jews, this place is where people ought to worship. Jesus takes both of these locations and blows them away. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Not in Jerusalem and not in Jerusalem. The issue about worship has nothing to do with location. In fact, both of these places would be obsolete historically. Right? And we know in 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. So that one's gone. If that was your place of worship, you know, all hope is lost. Jesus said, you will worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. For salvation 
is from the Jews. The Samaritans did not know God. They did not have a full revelation of him. And so they did not know how to worship him in truth. The Jews did have a degree of revelation from the Old Testament, but both the Jews and the Samaritans were hindered in their worship in an ultimate sense in this idea of location. So I'll hit location. <clears throat> I mean, I, we could go any place. In, in my culture, um, in a Eastern religion, a lot of times there's a focus on the spirits, but also there's a place where they would go to, a temple. Um, many times in different histories, whether it's Catholic or Buddhist, whatever, <coughs> or <coughs> Methodist or Baptist, a lot of times the focus is on what? The location. We come to church to worship. What happens, what do you do after church? You don't worship? That's problematic thinking in your head. All right? If this church was hit by a massive hurricane, there's no more building, and even the big ones around town are smashed, is our worship therefore gone? Jesus is going to answer all these questions really soon. It's not about the location. Not that I don't say, disagree that the Bible says, hey, we are to gather regularly and be in the place of gathering and being in the habit of gathering, and that we would do that well. But if Jesus moves us for, to a different location or the location is destroyed, um, that is not a problem. But a lot of times today and then we're hung up over what? location. I mean, a lot of times we just uh, think of the language you also, we come to worship at a place. Um, all right, daughter, son, it's time to worship. We are in a holy building now. All right. Uh, you ever hear that kind of way? Parents saying, son, Johnny, Joanne, it's time to worship now. We're in the pew. All right. So, you know, hype up your worship. I, I've seen parenting like that over and over. Have any of you guys seen anything like this? Somewhere out there. It's unbiblical, all right? Now Jesus is going to say, uh, what's, what is worship to, to, to look like here? And so he makes, we, we get an idea a little bit about worship as he talks about, as we, we cross-reference to Paul really quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verse 20, he says, Do you not know that your temple that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, in whom you have from God. <clears throat> Excuse me. You are not your own, but you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the transfer of location as a place to worship has been transferred to what? Your body, where the Holy Spirit now resides. And so that's one area that we get cued, on, <coughs> cued in on about worship. Our body is a temple now, and now the Holy Spirit dwells there. But I, I would say, without a doubt, and I said this before, Acts chapter 2, the whole book of Acts, Hebrews 10, talks about gathering regularly for worship. So I'm not dismissing that at all. But let's come to the last two verses in this in this passage, a display of grace, the first display of grace we see here, uh, spirit and truth of unhindered worship, verses 23 and 24. The heart of triune worship is centered on this text right here. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
but the Father, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So what do we get from this passage? Several times we see worship here, and we also see that the Father is seeking worshipers, and to worship them, worship the Father specifically in spirit and truth. So this is key. What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and truth? This is what the Father desires. This is what Jesus is seeking. This is what the Father is seeking. And this worship <coughs> is to be directed to Jesus because we see at the end of verse 23 that he, the Father seeks such people to worship who? Him, Jesus Christ. So let's, that's crystal clear there. So let's address a little bit what does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and truth, okay? So I want you to see that true worships, true worshipers are being, will be identified not by a particular shrine or location, by those who worship the Son. So that's clear from this passage. Christ is coming, and at a different time there are different there's, there's a distinction that's being made. There's false worshipers that we saw in the previous passages, all the different hindrances, but now he's talking about true worshipers that will worship him. And these true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. They'll worship him in spirit and in truth. So I want to answer that very soon, but just hold your thought. I'm going to give you a quick reference to Paul, who talks about worship in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which Manny read earlier. So the Apostle Paul adds a little bit here, and he urges the church of Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, basically Romans chapter 1 through 11, the whole gospel, focusing on the fact that we are sinners, that we're justified by faith alone, and that the Holy Spirit's work in Christ in your life, and so in view of God's mercy, he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. What is your spiritual worship? Offering your body as a living sacrifice to God. <clears throat> he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may test, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, worship is, means offering your bodies, your mind, and your will to worship. Okay, so that's another aspect of worship that Paul is drawing out. So let's come back now. We're going to circle back to John chapter 4, verse 24. It says in this passage, God is spirit. God is... <laughs> Spirit, meaning that God is omnipresent, God is everywhere. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's wrap our mind around a couple of these realities. God is spirit, so you don't need to be at one particular location to meet with Jesus because He's what? Everywhere and He's spirit. But He does say that we must worship in spirit and truth. Um, so I want to draw our attention on these two ideas here. Is in lowercase or capital? What did your Bible say? Lowercase or capital? Is lowercase. Is that a big deal or not? <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. And I'll say 
it's a couple things going on here. I, I think it's lowercase because it is lowercase. So I don't believe that the, specifically the Holy Spirit's being called out here, but a focus on our human spirit. Our human spirit, one in one sense, needs to be made alive in Jesus Christ. It needs to be regenerated in Jesus Christ. This is taking the analogy of faith and the full scripture in play. But to worship in all spirit also understands at least this reality. Most theologians conclude that our human spirit needs to engage with the spirit of God also because we understand from other references the spirit of God dwells in believers, it fills the believer, it empowers the believers, and the spirit, <coughs> fruit of the spirit um, <coughs> the Spirit of God is working along with our spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So, inwardly, we know that the Holy Spirit is working in our spirit to accomplish His divine work. And so, that's what's happening internally as we worship God in spirit. But it also says, and in truth. So, we first worship God in um, in truth, that means it needs to be consistent with the gospel. It needs to be consistent to written revelation. It needs to be consistent with God's word. It needs to be consistent to the one who was the word and was made uh, into human flesh, referring to Jesus Christ. So we what? Worship God in spirit and truth. So let's tie this together a little bit further. True worshipers are redeemed believers who worship Jesus Christ with our human spirit, engaged with the Holy Spirit, with God's holy word. So in other words, true worship is spirit-inspired, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, and truth-informed by the Bible, by the scripture, by true and right doctrine. This worship is to take personally as you relate to God in this way, by the Holy Spirit and by God's Holy Word, and corporately together. Um, let me talk about it in a broader sense. Uh, we want to think at the left side, we're not saying... <clears throat> you got to listen real carefully. I'm going to take a deep breath to get this. I, I believe, as I'm looking at this, that God wants charismatic worshipers. And when I say charismatic, those who have the charismatic Holy Spirit, Spirit, <coughs> the third person of the Trinity, filling and empowering his sons and daughters in Christ. I do want to guard against extreme. He's not calling for us to practice extreme charismatic chaos. Okay? We're not talking about charismatic chaos. But I believe that there is a point that he wants believers to be filled and engaged with the Holy Spirit. At the same time, I want to guard from the extreme right those who are intensely doctrinal and about having this strong head knowledge about doctrine to the point that they're living dead orthodoxy. They know the truth, but there's no joy and no life in them. That's not of Jesus either, right? That's very extreme right. But you know these people. They're high orthodoxy, but they lack heart. They lack love. They lack the Spirit of God. He, God desires to bring true worshipers together that engages Him in God's Holy Word and God's Holy Spirit together. Do you see a picture of what that looks like? 
So if you're asking kind of how this all plays out, I believe that we're Baptistic because we, what, baptize people, not because of the denomination, just because there's a command to baptize and a lot of people were baptized in the New Testament. Also, I would say we are also charismatic. In a sense, we want the Spirit of God to be working in our lives. Do we not? I think yes, right? We don't want to practice things that are beyond what Scripture says. Um, We want to have an orthodoxy, true doctrine, but we also want to live it out with orthopathy from our heart and orthopraxy in our practice, all together, the full package there. So I can't help but to, to remind us of some of the expressions of worship in the Psalms, because I'm not doing a two-part message here. So if you look on the screen, in the book of Psalms, which is found in the scriptures, we see different expressions of worship. Um, We see our voice being used in worship, in speaking, in shouting, in singing. God has given us our tongue, our vocal cords, and to what? Worship the God Worship the one and true God through our speaking, our shouting. Yes, it says shouting and singing. It talks about posture here. In the Psalms, we see vowing, standing, and dancing. I'm not saying inappropriate dancing, okay? Um, And it also says that instruments are used here. We also see hands being used here, too. Um, We see uh, the playing of instruments, all kinds of instruments done skillfully. We see new new songs being used, and we also see clapping. Clapping's biblical, okay? Well, so if it's in the scripture, understand it as biblical, right? If it says don't clap, well, we shouldn't clap. But it does say clap your hands, so it's okay to clap. But a lot of times we follow a lot of cultural things. The cultural custom of this church is we don't clap. You know, we're stuck somehow. But clapping's there. Lifting our hands. <clears throat> it says in the scripture in several places that it's okay. It's biblical to lift your, your hands, all right? Um, if you're in a sling or something, you broke your arm, we, we get those practical things. But otherwise, it's okay to lift your hands. Why is it okay? Because it's in the scriptures here, Psalm 63, verse 4. So, <clears throat> is this clear? It's in the scriptures. See, I think we get bogged down through a lot of culture and like (laughs) to the point that it hinders us in a lot of different ways. Um, And so we'll pick it up here in John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus, she's realizing that this prophet, this Jewish man is Jesus himself. We'll jump down to verse 39, 30, 39, 40, and 41. We see the spreading of the gospel through unhindered worship. This is really cool. <clears throat> Given the beginning of the story, here's a woman who's lost, who's confused who expressed shamed and was shamed. Um, Jesus engages her. She's finding freedom. She has hope. We see that she now has living water. And so in verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from 
that town believed in him, believed in Jesus because of the women's testimony. They saw this Samaritan woman change, transform, experiencing freedom and enjoying living water that satisfies her. I know we are so late, unfortunately. <clears throat> and so he told, <clears throat> we, the wrapping up here, he told me that, he told me that all that I ever did. She, Jesus knew her inside and out. So the Samaritan, so when the Samaritans came to him, referring to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. They had a positive relationship. They wanted to be around Jesus, so Jesus stayed for two more days. And guess what? Many more believed. Amazing. A transformed person going back to her people, sharing about the gospel. I'll wrap it up in this way. My hope is that this passage would help us to what? Worship him in an unhindered way. That if we have mental, cultural, geographical barriers, that we would overcome them by God's grace. And that we would worship him by truth, <coughs> by the spirit of God and the word of God. In other words, we'd worship privately and personally and that we'd worship publicly and what? Passionately. And passionately, you can have a passion for God and himself and his mission that supersedes your personality. I, I say that because sometimes I think we say we, hide, we might overdo our personality in one way and hide behind our personality in other ways. Let's stand and choose the best of those two songs to worship. Um, I realize I went over and we don't have much time. I'm so sorry. But let's come and see Jesus Christ. Let's treasure him above all else. And let's tell everyone else. And if you want to try dancing in an appropriate kind of way, go for it. Raise your hands. Go for it. Um, bow. Go for it. Why? Because they're in the scriptures. They're in the biggest book in the Bible. Fancy that, the Psalms. <laughs>